Welcome to your November 2009 edition of Voices of Experience, where our theme this year is Imagine. I'm your host, Jared Bro. Each November, NSA celebrates the birth of our founder, Cavett Robert. He's the guy who imagined that you should share all you know about speaking, even if it's with your biggest competitor. Cavett always said we should never fight over the pie, but we should build a bigger pie and share more of the pieces. This month, we'll be sharing a lot of pie on Voices of Experience. Open your mind. This month, Speaker Magazine is focusing on business building. And in keeping with that theme, let's meet Steve Spangler, a once struggling would-be teacher. Steve has built a speaking and product business that has made him the go-to guy for science teachers everywhere. Now, if you've never seen Steve in action, you need to first check him out on YouTube, where he is a bona fide viral video sensation. Steve is sharing his piece of the NSA pie with us on this month's edition of Backstage, as we discuss the perfect storm that catapulted his business. So the perfect storm started uh, September of 2005. Prior to that point, I had dropped Mentos into soda four or five times on television, network television once. And before that, during the whole 1990s, as a chemistry teacher, we were dropping wintergreen lifesavers into so. So we've been doing geysers for a long, long time. But in September 2005, for this particular news segment, I work for the NBC affiliate out of Denver, um, the news anchor got soaked. She dropped the Mentos in. I told her, you know, Kim, when you drop them in, you got to run back. And she's in this beautiful St. John's outfit, this pink, beautiful. So she doesn't pull back just right, and, and it goes all over her. And she proceeds to do that three more times. So by the end of the segment, she's like a drowned rat, you know. And, and what happens? She has to still do television for two more hours. And what do they talk about into every commercial and out is Kim's look because she's wet, and so it got a lot of play. So I took that piece of video and just tied it to this other piece of this perfect storm called a blog. Remember 2003, 2004? People were talking about blogs. Not many had them. And thank goodness I had a good internet kind of coach. And so we had a blog. It wasn't great, but at least I had something out there that had a little bit of momentum. So I blogged it that night, and I put the title, A News Anchor Gets Soaked, Science Experiment Sets New Record. Mentos Experiment Sets New Record. That and that video was picked up in a lot of different places. AP picked that up, and, and enough so that I got called into the vice president's office from Gannett Technology saying, what in the world have you done? You've shot, shut the servers down twice. And, and I think it's the very beginning, and at least from my experience, of a viral video. That video has been seen absolutely everywhere, but that was the start, and it got the Mentos people to call me. And, and at that time, you know, the word viral video hadn't really gone anywhere. Uh, part of this perfect storm is there was this other little weird thing called YouTube oh, that was yeah, just evolving. Yeah. So tell us about how that played into it. So, so I, you know, I, I work for Gannett, so I'm not going to copy the video and go put it on YouTube, but other people did. And the Gannett people didn't know really what to do with that because their intellectual property had been copied. And within a week, it was on VH1 and on MTV. So there's a program out there called Web Junk TV, and they were showing it as one of the top 
20 stupid things that happened that week, you know, on the internet. And it it, it became so critical for me uh, because the people that I wanted to market to, I had invented a toy previous and I wanted to use the Mentos for this toy. It was a special dropper that shot this geyser everywhere and really couldn't get the attention of the Mentos people and, and all of a sudden after this they called me, which that, was very cool. Yeah, that's that's pretty phenomenal. How long did you try to get permission from Mentos to be a part of this? And then how fast did the phone ring after this went viral? Well, we, I, you know, the, I think uh, two, three years probably. And when I say try, I didn't hound them at all. You know, can you help me with this? Are you interested in this? Just no response, no response. And so we cranked it up pretty hard after the, you know, the video took place and said, and I sent it to them, and they immediately came back. So let's go backwards for a second. The perfect storm happened in 2005. Uh, many people. Th- in the speaking world tend to think of you as almost an overnight sensation but you're the overnight sensation who had been doing this for how many years prior to this? <laughs> Fifteen. <laughs> talking, so, talking to adults. To, talking to kids. Talking to kids. I, I was told uh, by a, a an unnamed speaker uh, in the '90s when I kind of wanted to join a speakers association that that it was cute that I spoke to kids. But real speakers speak to adults, and so when you when you get enough practice and you start speaking to adults, then this would be a great thing for you to do. <laughs> I took that to heart, and I didn't join the speakers association. What I did do, however, is I just kept on doing school programs, and. Uh, so a school program for me meant you would get booked into a school, typically paid by a PTO or a PTA, and and I figured one assembly you didn't get much practice, so I offered five. So I'd do the same program five times in a day, usually four schools a week, and you do that over 15 years and you log about 3,500 programs. Even bad speakers get to be good speakers after 3,500 programs. Yeah, well, you hope. That's not bad. You, that's hope. Not, you know, that's actually enough to get your certified speaking professional designation. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. You just have to keep track of all this stuff, right? <laughs> Thank you, Laura Stack. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So one of the things that happened after you became an overnight sensation after uh, 15 <laughs> yes. years of doing this is you got the attention of the producers at Ellen DeGeneres, and that opened the door for you to be on her show almost on a, on a regular basis, seems like. Tell us about that. It was very, very cool. You can imagine kind of my surprise when the phone rang, and uh, and it's the producer from the Ellen DeGeneres show. And so, you know, your heart pounds a little bit, and you don't know what they want. And, and they say, we really would like to talk to you about doing some science experiments on the show. And, and so then you talk to another producer, and then you talk to another producer. And, and now I know kind of behind the scenes what happens. But they interview you three times from three different producers, and they have a little powwow to see whether or not you're good or they want you on. And then they come back and they make the offer. Um, and so I was just absolutely thrilled um, to get to be on. So that first time is kind of a blur. Uh, but you're on, and, and come to find out, you know how they found out about me is that they one of the producers subscribes to my little thing called an experiment of the week so we put this thing out there that I learned from NSA a long time ago. You can kind of add value by putting things on the website. So I produce an experiment of the week, and it's out there. And one of the producers liked this thing that I did with 10 nails. And you balance 10 nails on the head of another nail. And that was the thing that put them over the top. I guess that's what made them pick up the phone and call. More than the Mentos. Oh, yeah. They, I've never done the Mentos on The Ellen Show. They don't want it at all. That's That has been. And here's the other thing I discovered with The Ellen Show. They want to discover you. And I think that's the the truth with most media. The, one, the final question I got before they said we'll we'll book the plane tickets is what other national television shows have you been on? 
And what they really want is the answer is none. This is it. Because they want to find you. <laughs> For my first appearance in the Ellen Show, the executive producer comes over to me as the music's playing and says, I'd like to have you back in November. Don't do any other shows. It's pretty amazing. I, I was in the media for 15 years, and yeah, if somebody pitched to us too hard, we never covered them. We told them to buy a commercial. Yeah. But if we accidentally discover them, it adds value. And they want that, and they want people to tune into that show to see you. So once you dilute your brand over a whole bunch of shows, so they were very, very serious about it. And I, and I felt like saying to him, nobody's calling, you know? And, and I think he knew that as well. <laughs> but the loyalty is there. Honest to goodness, if I get a call from a, another show, I've been on other shows, but I always call that producer first uh, from the Ellen people and, and because they've been so kind to me. A lot of times, uh, I know when I get interviewed by national media or local media, and I tell this to people all the time, it doesn't produce new income or new jobs are you finding that you're getting new business for this or it's just a nice to have thing well i wish there was a way to be able to say um that you know the phone's ringing and i'm selling tons of product you know we have an online business has about a thousand products uh science toys and kits and things like that and and while we can see web traffic kind of go up i do get a ton of calls after i've been on and the calls are actually from all of you all my <laughs> friends the nsa people and and they they want to know a couple things they want to know is ellen the same off stage as she is on stage and that whole thing and so i'm going to give you a, the secret ready for this here's how she is I have no clue how she is off stage because <laughs> well, what you see on stage is exactly my interaction with her. I don't pow with her, but everybody thinks so. It's only in the last couple times I've even been allowed to be backstage as she's walking to the stage with her bodyguards. And it's not that she's uh, very protective or anything. It's that she wants spontaneity. I don't even practice with her. And we did a thing where we whipped the tablecloth off and everything was there. And I begged the producer to let me please practice with her. I won't be. I won't talk to her outside of that or anything. And he says, absolutely not. She wants everything live. And that's why she's so good. But she's a rock star. And if you think about it, she is, she's the rock star. That's amazing. Uh, let's talk business models for a second. Uh, tell me a little bit about your business model. Tell the audience who has never seen you, uh, the audience that have never been to your website. Your science, you've told me before that you're a science geek and you've got all these products. What can we learn about what type of products we should have and, and how we take our passion in life and turn it into a great business. Well, I learned from NSA the difference between a practice and a business. And I was in the practice model doing school programs so that if I didn't speak, you know, it's like a, a when I didn't speak, I didn't make any money. And so for us to be able to have a business, I needed to be able to derive income without having to necessarily speak or use the speaking to help drive that income. And so that's what we started to create. And I didn't meaningfully one day just sit out there and say, I'm going to develop all this product and it's going to be great. I started, I got fortunate enough to do teacher programs and get to speak at teacher conferences. And, and during the 1990s, I was uh, I worked for NBC Television on a program called News for Kids, and that was a nationally syndicated program. And as a result of that, I got this opening to speak at teacher conferences, and little did I know that that would really be the opening for product. Because what I learned was I didn't have to be the rock star on stage in front of the kids. If I made the teacher the hero in front of her classroom, then she would come back for and want more material and give me a chance to be able to develop more material and to feed it to them. So I don't get to really do any student programs anymore right now. I truly am just a teacher trainer from the speaking part of the business, and all the products come as a result of that. You probably don't want to hear this, but uh, you gave me some products in February, 
And I took them back and gave them to teachers. Good for you. And and they thought I was a rock star because I know Steve Spangler. <laughs> no, no. And 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 these teachers worship the ground that you work walk on. Uh, tell me about you know what is it that you're really trying to get these teachers to do? What power have you unleashed? How have you cloned yourself? Because that's kind of what I'm seeing. You're cloning yourself with your products. Yeah, well, thank you for saying that. Uh, I, my passion is to to get teachers back to the point where they not only enjoy teaching, but they remember the power that they have. And the power is this. They have the ability to create these unforgettable experiences. And that's really what it's all about. It's their opportunity to be able to do something so cool in class that a kid goes home and talks about it at the dinner table. And so that's the metric that we use. If it gets to the dinner table, you win. And and many times you don't get to the dinner table with a worksheet. You know, I don't know anybody who goes, because of this worksheet, I, you've changed my life. But maybe when the water floats or they, they turn the glass of water into a, a pile of snow or the egg goes into the bottle, it can be as simple as you could ever imagine, but it gets kids thinking and asking questions and engaged. And I guess that's the piece. The unfortunate part is that science education is becoming an extracurricular activity in schools all over the the country, all over the world, really. But I guess mostly in the United States. The number of people who don't teach science at the elementary level up and through um, uh, April is truly amazing. So what I'm trying to do is to get teachers to integrate this core kind of curriculum thing back into it. Make them the rock star. I had a teacher uh, during one of my school programs years ago look at me kind of with crossed arms, you know, and she's sitting there in the assembly. And at the very end, I, I was compelled to go over and see her and just said, thanks for bringing your class. And she looked at me and she said, you know, I've been teaching for 22 years and kids have never st- stood up and clapped for me. And that hit me at that point where the hair on the back of your arm stands up a little bit and you realize, I don't need to be standing in front of kids. I could just teach her to do it and then step back. I don't need to be the rock star. Feed them the material. You know, they say that most creative people protect their sources the best. I don't care. Just do the do the material that's out there because this is the stuff that we're trying to get you to do in the class so the kids talk about you. Final two questions. Biggest mistake and where do you go next? Um, biggest mistake was I didn't have product ready for a TV piece. Um, I was invited to be on national TV in Canada. I was speaking at a conference up there, and the program at the time was called the Deanie Petty Show, and she was kind of like the Oprah, I guess. And she held up a book that I had self-published at the very end of the segment. And she said, my kid loves this book about the tornado tube. And she says, and probably available in all bookstores. And she looks at me and says, thanks, Steve. And we go to commercial. It wasn't available at all bookstores. It was available <laughs> for my bedroom. And I had <laughs> 700 copies. And so it really, I wasn't ready for that. Um, although I had great materials and so forth, I wasn't ready for that kind of distribution. So I, I, you have to get your house in order so that when that opportunity hits and, and somebody calls you, Larry K, whoever it is, somebody, a big client calls you, you're ready to go. And where we go from here is um, I'm having a tremendous amount of fun doing what I'm doing now. Our little business is growing, and um, we sold a wholesale business called Be Amazing Toys off in 2004. And so I'm enjoying being able to develop stuff with our little team in Denver and six months later kind of see it on the store shelves and kind of work its way through. So I'm, I'm just very excited and very lucky to be where I am right now. This month on a Category of One, Joe Calloway is going to be talking to Lisa Ford. You know, Joe, in this business, so many people dream of uh, of being on the big stage and uh, and being that great motivational speaker. What is Lisa Ford's business model compared to some of these other well-known speakers? Here's the thing about Lisa. If you say, well, does she have a unique topic? No. 
It's excellent customer service. There are hundreds, maybe thousands of speakers that talk about customer service. Does she have any sort of particularly unique presentation style? No, she's very polished, very professional excellent on stage as are many many other speakers so why would she qualify as a category of one it's because of the incredible consistency over a long just textbook career in this business and the fact that in that niche she has become one of a handful of the go-to experts on that topic it's pretty darn simple i say i'm a business speaker and i focus on customer issues have you always focused on customer issues? I have. What started the whole thing? Well, the whole thing was I was working with a consulting firm, and their specialty was customer service training. So I had a job, and I started learning about all these customer situations and issues and how companies can better their customer relations. And I was a trainer, basically, doing that. And I did it for five and a half years and decided it'd be nice to see if I could go out on my own and see if I could make things happen. See, the thing that I think makes you a category of one is that you have, you picked a lane and you have really mastered that niche. You, you are truly one of the go-to people. I mean, one of the handful of go-to people in, in that niche. Have you ever tried going in some other directions? Well, I have, but it was dabbling. Uh, th that, to me, has been one of my strengths. And that's what I would always recommend to other speakers is pick a lane and focus and stay there because that has served me very well now did i veer some yes but it was all driven by once i left that consulting firm i hooked up with one of the public seminar companies career track and at that point they weren't doing customer service seminars yet so my entry point was doing a women's topic something called image and self-projection the next thing i picked up and did for them was how to get results with people in the meantime, I was lobbying them to do a customer service seminar. They bit, we did it, then I did the videotapes for them, then they linked up with Tom Peters and did the licensing agreement to do all Tom Peters in search of excellence, thriving on chaos, passion for excellence, all those, which then also took me back to the roots of the customer focus. Talk a little, the, the videotape was a big deal in your career. Real big deal. Talk about that a little bit. Well, I, they, they sold, oh, I, I think the numbers all over and done, about $32 million worth of those series. I mean, it was incredible. And we revised it. it it's in its third revision now. Uh, Career Track no longer selling it. So it's up to me and, and my distribution channels. Um, but that really launched me into a, a different realm of recognition and notoriety. You know, I, I was out there a lot more. And that's really what helped me, as you said. You know, a few people kind of own uh, the, you know, customer service. And that helped me do just that. There are people listening to this that will hear the message from NSA all the time. There's a drumbeat of change, change, be different, be different. Uh, there are some people that might feel frustrated because they're thinking, but wait a minute, I'm, I know what I am good at. And so your advice to them is stay the course. It can, it can work. 
I definitely believe in staying the course. I, th I think too many people go too many different directions and they don't focus. And when you don't focus, then you really are that you know, old proverbial jack of all trades. And what are you selling? And who would want to buy you? Uh, I, I was reading someone's bio just the other day and it was... It was someone I knew pretty darn well, and I was amazed at all the topics they had listed that they speak on. I thought, that's just a boatload. And how would I know what to choose? I mean, if I were a client, if I had gone to their website, and this was actually just underneath their signature line um, in an email. Mm -hmm. that, and when I said I was reading their bio, well, it read like a bio because it was way too long for a signature line, but it listed so much. Um, I, that, that hasn't worked for me. It might for somebody else. Okay, so here's the challenge, though. If you stick with, with this one-topic approach, how do you stay fresh? Well, then that's, you got to research a lot. Uh, you got to just stay out there you know, with the latest, hottest material, uh, Harvard Business Review stuff. I mean, for me, being a business speaker, you know, what's coming out, what's the latest stuff, and just stay fresh that way, as well as just eyes, ears open, um, you know, all the blog stuff. There, it's, it's easy enough to stay fresh. But gosh, as we all know, it's really tough to stay fresh because it's so easy to just do what is natural, what we know, what we're comfortable with, instead of trying the new stuff. Do you you know, ever, I, I know what works on the stage. I'd rather just keep doing that in most cases versus updating. Do you ever get bored with your work? I, I get bored. Now, Joe, you said you and I go way back. Yeah. I don't get bored like you get bored. Um, because I, I, I know you have a different threshold than I do. Um, I don't get so bored. And I'll, I'll tell you, I think some of it is I really am working a lot of my clients' material also into what it is I'm standing up there doing. You know, I, I've asked them a lot of questions. I've had the interviews. I, I maybe heard the presentation that was right before mine. And I weave in their stuff. And that keeps me feeling like each one is tweaked a little differently and works for that audience. Uh, so therefore, it works for me. Is it safe to say that uh, there, there are a lot of speakers that th their primary word in describing what they do is passion. I'm passionate about my message. I have a message that I want to share with as many people as possible and change lives. Is it fair to say that for you, it's not so much approaching it as a passion as this is a business it is a business and it's my business and my business is helping companies figure out how to create customers that are loyal and love them it's a business though am i passionate about customer service it's it, it's my business you know and so and and that seems so it nearly seems anti-nsa to say that everybody thinks you're supposed to be passionate if you're standing up there on that platform. Well, I love speaking. I love talking to my clients. I love my audiences. But it still is a business that I have had success in of figuring out doing something I enjoy doing. I can make darn good money doing it. And it works. You mentioned the... Uh that hugely successful video. What else is involved in your business model as far as how you create income? I am doing a few fun things. Video book that's out there. 
uh, revising my book right now, the Exceptional Customer Service proposal out for a second book right now. And then always looking at what do I need to do next to the DVD series, as well as splintering some of that material into industry-specific topics, such as a healthcare one or government, you know, that, that kind of angle, financial mm-hmm. services. Um, but really, the majority of my business is from speaking. And yes, products are great, and I sell them, and I make money doing it. But I will always consider myself a speaker first. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to see myself as a coach. I'm not going to see myself as just somebody who writes and is an author. Uh, my primary income does come from standing on a platform and speaking. What's your biggest challenge right now? Oh, my biggest challenge when it comes down to it is staying fresh, current, research, and then balance. Making sure I stay sane to enjoy life, my family, uh, take time to be home, be in the moment, and, in, and balance business with family. Here's a question that just popped in my head, and I'm, I'm going to ask it because it doesn't make any sense to ask you this. You are, in my opinion, so confident and comfortable and polished and yet so real and genuine on stage. In terms of your presentation skills, what do you need to be better at? Oh gosh, Uh, with my presentation skills, what do I need to be better at? There seems to me to be a long list. So so, So it's a hard one for me to just immediately jump out, give you a great quick answer on. But I think more storytelling that is concise storytelling. I would love to get better at bringing in some of the fun technology, the cool videos. Oh, we've seen you do that, Joe, and it's just so much fun and cool, and it does add value. So I know that is an area I am so weak in as well as, again, just the latest, hottest statistics keep pounding them into my presentations so people want me because I'm not using stuff from 10 years ago. Yeah. From a personal standpoint, what's been the best thing about this career for you? Oh, being able to literally work out of home. Yeah, I've never done the thing of go get an office someplace. So I am incredibly productive with a home office. Because I I do things late at night once my daughter goes to bed, you know, my my husband's happily involved in doing something else. So, you know, I'm just, I I get a lot done. You know, I I can do laundry and and work at the same time. It's an amazing profession. And that, that to me, just works, and, and it works very well. Do you have staff? Oh, no, never have, never will. Now, a lot of people are going to be surprised at that because you're a very, very, very successful speaker, and everybody thinks you have to have staff, and one of the key staff members that people are searching for is, I've got to find somebody to market me. How, if you don't have staff, how, do, how have you always gotten your jobs? Well, the one way I've gotten my jobs is to go stand on a platform, do what I do very well, and that creates buzz and repeat and referral business. That to me is my main marketing right there. 
I have no brilliance when it comes to any type of marketing, such as picking up a phone, making cold calls, sending out postcards, having an incredibly organized sales list that I regularly send out, e-zines, et cetera, to. People who know me very well know I do none of that. I, I probably should. I don't. Is your, ca- um, is your calendar as full as you want it to be? It is currently. Yes, it is. And generally has been. It for generally has been. Now, let me reiterate something, because you're going you're to set a lot of people free. You don't make cold calls or sales calls, right? No, I return phone calls yeah. once people have called me. But they call you. <laughs> yes. And I'm, I'm just repeating what you said, because I think this is really important for a lot of people. You don't send out postcards. You don't do emailing selling. You do good work. And that on stage. That's, that's what I believe it's about. Okay. And one other marketing piece, which is over the last few years, I've really worked to make certain I'm deepening my relationships with the bureaus who have booked me. And again, I don't approach them, but the ones I already have worked with, they've contacted me. I've proven myself with them by going and doing a a good piece of work for them. Then I work to deepen those relationships. They have been a great marketing tool for me. I suspect you are also careful about being sure that you're the right fit for whatever job you are approached about. Definitely. There's so many things. We all in this business, especially if we're a business speaker, will laugh and say, you know, last thing I want is an after-dinner speech. Uh, Anytime somebody's had a drink, forget it. Don't want to be standing up there. Uh, I have a real strong ability to say no when it does not fit me. I do not. I don't want to fail. I am risk-adverse. I, so I don't want to put myself in a position that it's not going to work for me, uh, and certainly it would not then work for the client. Looking at where you are right now and looking back on 20-plus years of doing this, what's the biggest lesson you've learned? To slow down and enjoy it as I'm going through it. It is so easy to get focused on what's next, What should I be doing? What's everybody else doing? Am I measuring up? Yes, I'm getting older, so I'm getting a little smarter. And I believe that wisdom is enjoy more of what I have at this moment, at this time in life. This month on Ones to Watch with Jane Atkinson, we're going to profile Scott Klosowski. And... uh, he's going to be an interesting guy to watch because he comes out of a really interesting executive background. Why did you choose him this month? Well, you know, that's exactly it. The guy was a CEO of technology companies and really uh, hit the ground very, very quickly. I've watched his career catapult and then catapult again and then catapult again. And I'm amazed. And a lot of it uh, it comes down to what he's doing on the platform, which is interesting, and, and the technology end of things. So I just find him absolutely fascinating. I, I, I'm a strange cross between a technology geek and a businessman. So I, I have a really good ability to uh, help business people understand how to use technology as a tool. 
So uh, there's always the the business logic side of any business, the speaking business or any other business. There's uh, how you're successful at, at that business, you know, how you serve your clients or your customers. And technology is just a tool that supports that. So I, I'm really good at, at not only understanding how do you um, how do you make technology fit into your business so that you can prosper, but I'm also very good at looking out over the horizon to understand the trends so that I can kind of help you get out on the forefront of um, what technology can do for you. Well, I want to come back to the trends in a little bit as far as maybe what might be coming up for the speaking industry. But before we go there, you kind of hit the ground running in your career. What would you you know, what are some of the things that had happened previously to you actually getting into the speaking business that allowed you to do that? Well, I was uh, the CEO of, of a few different software companies that I'd started. And so uh, I, I was getting asked to speak quite a bit by, you know, rotary clubs and, you know, different business groups about new things that I knew about in technology that other people wanted to know about. And so, uh, you know, that's really the first time I ever spoke in front of groups. And then you're right, I, I was lucky enough that uh, uh, somebody who worked for me knew somebody that worked at a large bureau. And um, then they interviewed me at the bureau, and I did. I kind of hit the ground running right away with a, with a large bureau. But uh, it was mostly because I had some expertise in technology that most people didn't have uh, and had an ability to explain it in layman's terms um, so I could keep it in the vernacular without using all the big words and um, it, it just kind of gave me a jump start. And, and since then, your career has taken, you know, several catapult leaps and uh, hit some flashpoints. What do you attribute some of those bigger leaps to? Well, boy, you know, sometimes there's just a certain amount of luck that's involved. You know, you just meet the right person uh, at the right time, um, or you get invited to do, you know, the right event where, um, where the right people see you. Uh, but, you know, I think outside of just saying that luck has a lot to do with it, uh, you know, I, I, I have a specific expertise in an area um, that's interesting to people, and it changes over the years. So I, when we say technology in general, what was interesting in technology 10 years ago is different than what's interesting today. And so that's a bit of a blessing in the thing that I speak about. And so, you know, what's happened to me a few times in my career is that a certain kind of technology will get hot, and then people will invite me to events to speak. You know, so invite me to an MPI event or to IASB um, to speak about, uh, you know, what's hot in technology. Uh, and then I'll get seen by a lot of people, and then that kind of creates the next step up for me. That's terrific. You know, we, we always talk about picking a lane and focus and how important that is. How would, that, how would you say that that's helped your career? Well, I think uh, it's helped because I've made that mistake before where I didn't pick a lane, uh, you know, and I got so entranced with speaking um, that I started out speaking in technology and then started thinking, wow, well, I could speak about leadership and I could speak about creativity. I could speak about innovation. You know, since I'm a great speaker, I could speak about all these other things. Uh, and for a while, I started to move in that direction and then, you know, realized that, you know, what I'm really gifted at is technology. And, uh, and so, you know, a wise person um, guided me back to that. And, uh, you know, once I really did focus back on technology and put all my energy on that, I really, you know, found that that helped, you know, helped my speaking career tremendously. You're a man of uh, many talents, so I'm sure that it's easy to get caught up in doing the wrong things or things that maybe not won't serve your empire down the road. 
Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think I'm passionate about helping people, and I think a lot of speakers are. Mm-hmm. And I think once you feel comfortable on stage, I think sometimes you tend to think, well, I could speak on any subject. Uh, and so I could help people any way they need help. Mm-hmm. So you need somebody to speak on leadership? Sure, I could do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, really it, it, it lessens what you can do when you try to be all things to all people. It yeah. really does. Absolutely. So let's talk about technology in the world of speaking. What are some really cool things that you might do from the platform that other people are not doing or th- cool things that you've discovered? Well, you know, I, I, I'll tell you, um, one of the things I've realized being a technology speaker is I have to use technology well on the stage. You know, it's very oxymoronic if I get up there on stage and don't use technology well. So I do things like um, I've let audiences email all their questions into me during a talk instead of doing traditional Q&A. Uh, I use a, a system that allows um, the audience to text message questions right to my screen. Mm-hmm. So at times I'll run a dual screen with my presentation on one screen and they'll text message live to the other. Other screen. Um, I use uh, I use Keynote instead of PowerPoint, so I do pretty high end visual presentations. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly use a lot of video and audio. I'll use the internet live, uh, it, so I use technology a lot um, today. And I've also done things like built properties in Second Life, so that I'll be able to simulcast speeches in the future where you can see me live or see me in Second Life as well. So. Uh, you know, there's an awful lot of ways just just during the presentation that you can use simple technologies to create a different kind of relationship with the audience. And um, and honestly, I'm surprised more speakers aren't doing it. You know, I think that a lot of them are just scared that the technology might break down. And because of that, they don't try it. Because um, I can tell you, I've been very successful at creating a new type of communication with an audience by letting them speak to me anonymously to a screen the whole time I'm talking, as opposed to doing traditional Q&A at the end of a talk. Chances are they're going to be sitting there uh, twittering anyway, so you might as well take advantage of it, right? Absolutely. And one one of the things I've noticed is that a lot of people Twitter during my talks. I mean, afterwards, because I search on my name, I'll see a dozen tweets that um, were done in the middle of a talk. Uh, which I love, you know, um, so I don't feel bad about people out there working on their devices if, if they're Twittering about me. That's terrific. What do you think, as far as technology and marketing is concerned, what has been some of the best things that you've found? Uh, well, I mean, uh, under the umbrella of social media, uh, there's all kinds of technology that's now developing. Um, uh, for me personally, I look at social media in two different lights. One side of social media is an ability for me to create a river of information that's valuable to me. So who I connect to, who I follow, what blogs I read, that creates a river of information that helps me be smarter about the subjects I speak about. Very important to me because I've never had the ability to have that kind of river of thought leaders that I could look at every day. The other side is my ability to project out. So it's my ability to write blogs to Twitter and get followers and for me to create a unique voice out in the world that promotes me because now hundreds and then thousands of people follow what I say and a lot of them happen to be bureaus and bureau salespeople, for instance. And so when I um, Twitter about something that I'm doing a new presentation on, all of a sudden I start getting calls from bureaus saying, hey, you know, could we go market that? So uh, you know, certainly social media is now a, a powerful way to market and, and with a, a basically free underlying cost, which is kind of neat. Yeah, that's very cool. You know, it's interesting because 
a lot of a lot of times it's timing when you're trying to work with bureaus or agents, whoever it might be, and you're you're out there planting ideas and planting seeds and saying, I'm I just did this for this client. They turn around and take that out to another client and present it, and uh, you're 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 basically just helping to promote your own business that way. Yeah, I, I can give you a great example. I, I got hired to give a, a series of speeches about uh, virtual teams. What are best practices for virtual teams? That was not on my list of talks before I got hired to do it. But I was asked if I could do it for a large company. I wrote a white paper for, for one bureau. I got hired to do a number of speeches. But once I did that presentation, I went ahead and shared that with a few other bureaus and said, look, I hate to waste this because it's a really good presentation that I did for built for one company. And so now I have other bureaus now marketing that out to all their customers, saying here's, a, here's an unusual new speech that you won't see you know, on most lists, um, but is really apropos today. You know, what are the best practices for building virtual teams? And you know, we'll use social media to, to do all that. So what do you see coming down the tube for you in your speaking career? Well, you know, I, I intend to just continue to grow. I mean, I, I would like to be one of the most talented speakers, and I measure talented speakers by the impact that you have on the audience, by the ideas per minute that I deliver during a talk. So, I mean, I, I have pretty lofty goals of being one of the top speakers out there when measured that way. Um, you know, that's that's clearly what I think I have the ability to do. So I, I just try to study the craft. I try to get better on stage every time. I watch myself on video a lot and try to improve on, on the slightest little details. And then at the same time, work hard on the marketing side of the business just so that I get exposed to people. So let me ask you, are you one to watch? Are you ready for us to watch you? Are you ready to launch your speaking career to the next level? Well, if you would love to learn from Jane personally, you can actually spend a full day with her at the NSA Fall Conference at the Arizona Grand Resort in Phoenix, November 20th through 22nd. Jane is just one of the many great speakers that you'll learn from. Fall Conference promises to be a great resource for education and networking. To register, visit nsafallconference.org. I'll be there. I hope to see you there as well. It's time once again for the segment we call Offstage. We're joined again by Renee Godefroyne. We've asked Renee this year to profile speakers who make a significant impact through their philanthropic activities offstage. Renee, who are you profiling for us this month? Many of our NSA members do make a difference offstage, but Lee Ann Tman goes above and beyond. She's been a champion for the babies, the orphans of the Vietnam War. Leanne helped raise money and supplies for those orphans. She has helped rescue, get this, over 300 babies in what is called Operation Baby Lift. Well, it began in 1975 when I was um, accidentally caught up in the Vietnam orphan airlift. I went to Vietnam thinking as a volunteer I would bring back six babies for their um, pre-assigned homes in the United States. But when I got there, President Ford had okayed Operation Baby Lift, and I was told I wouldn't help to take out six babies, but instead 300. And at that time, you helped solve a problem, an immediate problem. But the bigger problem continued. What did that lead you to do? 
Well, currently, I've not been back since, but currently I, I help to support um, a couple of orphanages there, one particularly called Halo, Helping and Loving Orphans. And it was it's run by another woman who happened to be a part of Operation Baby Lift, and she went to Vietnam and has established orphanages and support systems there for them. So tell me about how you and your husband became personally involved as a couple. Hmm. Well, ever since I was a little girl and eight years old, I knew I wanted to adopt a child when I grew up. And so I made that decision then. I remember trick-or-treating for UNICEF and knowing that two and a half cents could buy a carton of milk and save a child's life. And that's when I decided I was going to have an orphanage when I grew up. I would run one, and in the meantime, I would adopt a child. And I did the latter. I didn't run an orphanage, but I, we did adopt a son in the midst of that chaos in Vietnam. How did that come about? Well, we were on a waiting list for this organization, and I expected our son in about two years. But by the time I got to Vietnam, bombs were dropping outside the city. President Ford had okayed Operation Baby Lift, and I was told I could walk into the next room and choose a son, rather than waiting to be assigned one from across the desk at national headquarters a month later. So I literally walked into a room with 100 babies, and one little boy got down and crawled across the room into my arms, my heart, and our family. And that's how we got our son. Tell me this. What suggestion do you have for us speakers who want to make a difference off stage? How do we go about it? Well, I think sometimes when you listen to your deep inner voice, you're sort of guided to what your calling might be. And obviously, we've been called to be speakers, to share our treasures. And I think we're also called to do that in our personal lives as well. I'm a big believer in tithing. And it seems like the more we give, the more we get back. My daddy was a farmer, and he always said, I keep giving and giving to God, but he just keeps giving and giving back to me, and his shovel is bigger than mine. <laughs> and I found that to certainly be true. Can you share some insights about how to choose and where to go and what to give? Sure. I tried to deny the need to tithe because I didn't think we had enough money to give away. And for many years, we didn't have very much money. Kind of a frugal beginning to our um, marriage when we were both students and all. But I was taught, and I do believe, that tithing, if you'll always have enough if you give 10% away. And it, I found that true over and over again. No matter how much I give, I get much, much more back. And I also learned about tithing of time, and that was interesting. I used to think I didn't have enough time to help, you know, a friend, or if I really pressed on a book deadline. I can remember once I was had a big, huge book deadline coming, and I also knew that there was a friend who wanted to have coffee with me, and I knew that was going to take hours. And I almost declined, and then I remembered the tithing of time. And so, of course, I spent that time with her, which did end up to be an entire morning, got back into my office and I had a note from the publisher that that big, big project that was weighing on me had been assigned to someone else. So there again, you tithe and you get even more time than you expected. In the 10% that you give, do you give it all to one place or do you spread it around to multiple organizations? Multiple, actually. I, I mean, I'm a sucker for anybody that taps on the door and I buy every Girl Scout cookie and all that, like we all do, I think. But when we taught our children to uh, tithe, uh, we made that point. I mean, if whatever you give to save the whales and save the earth and Girl Scout cookies and tithing your time to being a Boy Scout leader and all that, that all counts. It doesn't mean you have to just necessarily give 10% of your money to a church. You can give 10% to any cause that is needed. All right. Any final thoughts? I think we are all given gifts. 
in our life. And I think we need to identify those gifts. And then I think we have the responsibility to share them in a generous way. It's time again to get your to-do list ready. Our panel of experts is back, and they've got a new list of little steps that you can take to advance your product development, social media, writing, and business strategy. As we break big tasks into little actionable items each month on If You Could Do Just One Thing This Month. Hi, this is Bill Cates. If there is one thing you could do this month to create multiple streams of income, it would be to develop a video training program. Last month, we talked about creating a specific system or process that you move people through to produce tangible results. Now it's time to put it on video. One way to do this is to go into a video studio and record the program. If you do this, I recommend you have an audience present to help with your energy level and help vary the camera shots. A live presentation is three-dimensional, and the energy of a good speaker always comes through loud and clear. But a video is only two-dimensional. It takes more energy to hold an audience's attention with video. Just you talking to the camera for a 20 to 30 minute segment can get quite boring for most people. This is why you want an audience. Now in my first video training program, I only had an audience of about 10. While this worked okay, I didn't really have the energy I would have liked. This program sold quite well for over five years, so it was okay, but I just went into the studio again and recorded a new version. I had a local client provide the audience of 50 people. They got a free day of training, and I got an audience. What a difference this made in my energy level, especially as the day wore on. As you might imagine, I could feed off their enthusiasm and reaction to my ideas. This helped me keep a high level of energy throughout the entire program. Many companies have video studios and video production capabilities, or they can record live presentations and handle all the editing, with your oversight, of course. That's how we produced our first video training program. Just offer them a great discount. It could even be a 100% discount if they handle all the production. Then you can turn around and sell the program to hundreds of your clients for a substantial profit. Now, are you ready for the magical part of all of this? Your video training program can lead to licensing deals where you do nothing and make a lot of money. I'm going to tell you all about licensing deals in the next month's issue of Voices of Experience. This has been Bill Cates. Thanks for listening. Now go do something that produces a result. I'm Chris Clark Epstein, and it's time to talk about writing. What should I write about is a common concern of all writers. As speakers, we should never fear the empty page. We have whole speeches filled with significant content and even more helpful from a writing perspective, stories. In order for those stories to be useful as part of a written piece, you're going to have to think about them differently. Stories that you tell from the platform come alive with gestures, poses, and vocal emphasis. Words on a page don't. It takes a different skill set to put words on paper in such a way that they convey the energy and emphasis radiated by the same story told from a platform. Suggestion. If you are a student of story crafting and storytelling, you might want to get and read The Writer's Journey, Mythic Structure for Writers by Christopher Vogel. Learning about the classic elements of stories will enhance both your speaking and your writing, but I digress. 
If you've been following these segments so far, I can only imagine you're ahead of me on this particular writing assignment. You're right. You're going to practice translating powerful spoken stories into powerful written stories. Pull out your notebook, open to a fresh page, and create a list of phrases that will trigger five to seven of the smaller anecdotes that add interest to your presentations. For now, don't pick the long-involved, multi-layered epics you've woven over the years. Save those for later. They have the potential, for example, of becoming a central theme woven throughout a book. By practicing your writing skills on the smaller stories in your repertoire, you'll be ready to craft the big one when the time comes. So, you've got your list. Pick one of the stories, put your trigger phrase at the top of a fresh page, and start writing. You'll quickly discover that it's a challenge to write action. Say I want to set up an argument between longtime friends. On a platform, I can say, what? With an upward intonation, spin and stride purposefully and briskly for three steps. To write the same moment, I have to pen, quote, what? Question mark, close quote. She demanded as I turned my back and walked as far as I could get from her without leaving the room. This isn't easy, but well worth the effort. Consider how your spoken stories have changed and improved over time. Your written stories will too, and the payoff will be writing that is as alive for the reader as your speeches are engaging for the listener. Since only writing will make you a better writer, commit to translating spoken stories into written stories on a regular basis. It's been terrific spending this time with you. I'd love to hear how your writing skills and attitudes are being shaped by these segments. Drop me an email at chris at change101.com. I'll write you back. Hi, Ford Sakes here, and I've been asked to share quick strategy segments for VOE on how you can monetize your social networking efforts to grow your business. Last issue, I expressed how important it was to claim your user accounts at Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, and have a blog, preferably a blog as part of your regular website. Now, in this issue, we're going to take a look at the importance of selecting targeted keywords to use in your social media account profiles. Now, this starts with an understanding that keywords drive traffic. But with social media marketing, it's not the typical drive traffic to get people to buy your product or service or even get a booking. It's really about relationships, adding value, joining the conversation, and getting and giving feedback. With social media, the words you use in your profiles, account names, tags, blogs, and titles, all help you to expand your digital footprint and get your content found. Now, okay, the first thing about keywords that you should be focusing on are that keyword phrases should be at least two to five words. You know, just like yourself, when you use a search engine, you probably search for at least three words. So when you're on your user account setting screens in Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn and the other sites, make sure you take the time to completely fill out your profile and use targeted keywords so that your account will get properly cataloged and make it easier for people to connect with you. Now when you post a video to YouTube, make sure you work your keywords in your titles and descriptions. On Twitter, make sure you go to the settings screen and fill out your name, URL, and bio and put your keywords in there too especially if you have a more common name. That way, when other people are trying to find you, they can identify which Twitter account they really want to follow. Same goes with your tweets. Use your keywords. Same goes with your Facebook and LinkedIn profiles. Update them to make sure that you have targeted keywords and keyword phrases that you want to use that you think other people would search for. 
So here's what you need to do. Jot down your top 25 to 50 keyword phrases and keep that list handy during your social media networking. And most importantly, always write for the site visitor first and then for the search engines. If you have great content, you share it, and you engage in the conversations, you'll be well on your way to monetizing your social media marketing efforts. Okay, this has been Ford Sakes from PrimeConcepts.com reminding you to take action every day on your outbound marketing efforts. Hey folks, it's Mike Rayburn again. And if you remember last month, I talked about being willing to do what others will not and how important that philosophy has been in my life. I'd like to share one other philosophy with you, and there's a story involved. Early in my speaking career, I got booked to do a keynote and breakout session for a group of underprivileged high school technology students in Georgia. What I didn't know before arriving is that the racial balance of the group was mostly African American, then Hispanic, then white, and then Asian. All political correctness aside, I, at the time a 40-year-old white guy with an acoustic guitar, was worried about finding common ground. Well, they were great kids, and the keynote went fine. For the breakout the next morning, I was going to put down the guitar and just talk, and the client told me he wanted the kids to leave with life strategies that would help them forever. So here's what I did. After sharing some possibility thinking tools and talking about purpose in life, I asked them a series of questions. I said, hey, tell me, did racism, sexism, and discrimination exist 100 years ago? Of course, they all nodded their heads yes. I said, okay, do racism, sexism, and discrimination exist today? Again, they nodded their heads yes. I then said, not to be pessimistic, but do you think racism, sexism, and discrimination will exist 100 years from now? They again nodded their heads in agreement. So then I laid it in their laps. So what does that mean for you? It means this. Succeed anyway. Succeed anyway. Will it be harder for you? Yeah, probably. Succeed anyway. Is it fair? No, not on your life. Succeed anyway. The minute we blame our lack of success on someone else or anything else, we take all of our power and place it in the hands of the very people we least want to have it. The best way to stick it in the face of anyone or anything that would hold you down is to become a raving success. Now, I added that doesn't mean we don't work for change, but let's face it, you have a better chance of affecting change from a place of success and integrity, right? And for what it's worth, I got a lot of very positive reactions to that program. Now, my point for absolutely all of us, whatever it is that holds you back and is totally unfair, don't be a victim. Resist the urge to blame and succeed anyway. Whether it's this economy or race, gender, religion, sexual preference, or anything else, take full responsibility for your results and succeed anyway. Whoa, I got a little heavy there, but I really wanted to share that with you, and I will see you next month. Thanks. I'm going to be a speaking star, I'll have to fly first class. I'll be smug and coy, avoiding eyes as the little people pass. Because everyone around must know just who I are, baby, if I'm going to be a speaking star. Okay, speaking stars, it's time to return to our live performance from A Night of a Thousand Starfish, recorded live at the NSA convention. Now, to truly enjoy this presentation, you need to picture Molly Cox dressed as a mermaid. That's right, tail, scales, and all. 
and she's being carried out by two of our other humorists. And then she is laid across several chairs with a long cigarette holder in her hand. You got the mental picture? Great. Now, let's go live to a night of a thousand starfish for Molly's own twisted interpretation of the infamous starfish story. Ladies and gentlemen, the effervescent, <laughs> lovely, talented, charming, wait, this is going to be funny by itself. Vinny just said you should have seen the one that got away. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I introduce to you next year's chair with chairs at Speaker Magazine, Miss Molly Cox. There was a man walking down the beach he looked over and he saw me. I had washed up among thousands of starfish. I was throwing them back into the ocean, exhausted. So I took a flask out, opened it up, <laughs> took a swig, took a drag of a cigarette. He looked at me as though he'd never seen a mermaid drinking out of a flask and smoking a cigarette before. He came over, I said, what the hell are you looking at? <laughs> he said, are you really a mermaid? And I said, well, <laughs> I'm a half-breed. I'm half-mermaid and half-starfish. My father was the king of the sea. <laughs> I said, what are you doing out here? And he said, well, I, I'm grieving. I, I was just at Michael Jackson's memorial. And uh, so I thought I'd take a quiet moonwalk on the beach. And he said, what is it? What is it that you don't like about starfish? And I said, it's not that I don't like starfish. It's just that, you know, <laughs> mermaids better. <laughs> starfish are dumb. They don't have a brain. They have two stomachs. Never good for a girl. <laughs> and they have eyes on the each of their legs. That means 10 eyes. So when one of my BFFs, like Ariel or Madison, says, hey, look. I got 10 eyes going in different directions. I'm absolutely seasick. <laughs> he said, well, I don't know what to do about that, but I'm just so sad about Michael Jackson. I said, did you know the King of Pop? He said, Dr. Pepper? I said, no. The guy with the tape, the glove, the plastic surgery, hung babies out his window. He was a black man, now he's a white woman. He said, Oh, yeah, that. We're talking about the same guy. He said, you mean, did I know him? He said, well, <laughs> I was at Neverland once for the night, but I was just a boy. <laughs> I said, as I looked at him, you know, I've, 
I've always liked humans, but one thing I can't stand is that story they tell about starfish. It just takes so much away from us. They go on and on and on and take them on this wild roller coaster about, about making a difference. It just makes us look stupid. And then I looked at him and I kind of liked the human. <laughs> and I said, is that a starfish in your pocket or are you just happy to see me? <laughs> And I said, so you game? And he said, no, I've never been with a half-breed before. I don't think it's going to make a difference. And I said, well, there was a guy out here grieving earlier today. He was grieving over Billy Mays. <laughs> and he stopped to say something. I said, but wait, there's more. <laughs> and then I said, take a look over in the sand. And he looked over, and the man I was with earlier was sitting back, you could hear Barry White music still playing in the sand. There was a rum and coke sitting by him. He had a fish-eaten grin on his face. And he said, he was pretty happy. And the man looked at me and I said, well, I made a difference to that one. So much for family hour. <laughs> a fish-eating grin. Let's dissect what Molly Cox did. Uh, David Glickman and Ron Culberson are, are joining me again as partners in crime on this endeavor of the starfish story. She came out dressed as a mermaid. Not, not just came out, she was carried out. Well, mermaids can't walk. <laughs> I've noticed that. I've noticed that. <laughs> just a, just a, a nice detail of staying in character. <laughs> You know, um, we talked about the power of visual humor, and this is an area that I think most speakers don't, don't really understand the power of what can be seen that doesn't necessarily have to be heard, whether it be um, funny PowerPoint slides, funny handout materials, uh, learning aids, I think we're now calling those instead of <laughs> handout materials. But, but the visuals can be almost more powerful. Uh, Lou Heckler talks about the power of the pause, but if you notice that what goes with that is the power of the look on his face. And it is, it is very powerful. So Molly had an incredibly well-crafted story that reminded me of those, those old detective stories, the way she wove the words in, in and out of, of the story. But just looking at her while listening to that made it even funnier. It, it was a great crafted story with a great visual. It was one of those things where you take those two together, it raises the level of the performance exponentially. One by itself wouldn't have necessarily uh, done it. I mean, it would have been entertaining, but because she combined it in a performance piece, it just took the humor higher. You're not expecting to see those words coming out of that costume. But what are your thoughts on how edgy she was? You know, she used some current events uh, uh, in there. Michael Jackson had died about a month before uh, these were all recorded live, and she wove that in. And that was that was pretty edgy and pushing the envelope in a politically correct society and sometimes a politically correct organization. You pull in current stuff, so maybe you ought to speak to that, because that's part of your your style as well. I, I do. Uh, and, and Molly took some chances there. And those particular lines perhaps didn't get um, as, as high a laugh as some of her other pieces because 
some audiences will be less receptive to that. But you have to give her credit for walking that line. This was a comedy night. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the other thing to, that, that's really a great lesson in that, though, is that current events are always powerful to play on. Now, there is a range of current events, and, and you, we all know what happened uh, right after 9-11 is all the comedians stopped doing humor on 9-11. Um, but here's the thing about current events. If you comment on the hotel you're in speaking, the town you're speaking in, something that was just in the news that day, people love that because everybody's in on the joke and everybody gets it because we were all experiencing the same thing. It's November and time for our visit with Chief Imagineer and President of NSA, Phil Van Hooser. And believe it or not, a third of your presidency is over already. And I understand that already you've spent a whole lot of time traveling to the various NSA chapters. Tell us about it. Well, when I originally thought about the prospects of visiting upwards of 40 NSA chapters over a period of 18 months or so, it was pretty easy to imagine the worst. But I'll tell you, one of the true highlights of my time leading up to My presidency, and now, of course, during my presidency, has been the opportunity to visit with our NSA chapters and their local members around the country. Chapters have always been the local representation of our national organization. And I personally feel that the local-national connection is stronger today than it's been, well, certainly for a long time. So let's take it a little deeper. When you get to the chapters, what's so special about that visit? Well, first of all, it's amazing to see how firsthand the depth, variety, and diversity of talent that exists within our organization. When we go to an NSA national conference or convention, of course we're surrounded by literally hundreds and hundreds of individuals from around the world. And the frustrating part is there's never enough time. But when I visit a chapter, I'm able to spend quality time with anywhere from 20 to maybe 100 or so speakers, all at varying stages of their professional speaking careers. Personally, I love the quality of these interactions. The second thing that's special is that I am so encouraged to see the quality of leadership being offered on the local level, as well as the national support that's being offered by Chapter Leadership Council Chair and Certified Speaking Professional Jan Dwyer and her qualified team of volunteers. From these local leaders will spring our next generation of NSA national leaders. And I can tell you with great confidence the spirit of Cavett is alive and well in our chapters. You mentioned the spirit of Cavett. What does that really mean to you? Jared, that is a very important question. Cavett Robert, along with a small group of other speakers, was instrumental in founding the National Speakers Association almost 40 years ago. His vision, and theirs, of course, was amazing. But when someone today mentions the spirit of Cavett, most aren't referencing the man. In fact, most of our members today never actually met the man. Instead, I believe they're referencing an undying spirit of professional camaraderie, support, encouragement that is basically unheard of in most other professional associations. What other professional association do you know where members gather regularly for the purpose of sharing what they know with fellow members who, by the way, happen to be their professional competitors? Yeah, that's always amazed me. So what can our listeners do that would expand the spirit of Cabot within their chapters as well as beyond? Well, I have two very specific ideas. 
First, we all need to get personally and actively involved. I want to challenge every professional member of NSA, every CSP, every CPAE, every past president, to commit to attending two local chapter meetings before we meet again for our July 2010 annual convention. Secondly, once you get there, make yourself available to do something, even if it's no more than welcoming guests. I know how busy we all are with our businesses, families, and of course other responsibilities. But giving back two Saturdays, or whatever day your local chapter meets, I believe is the spirit of Cavett personified. As we wrap up the November edition of Voices of Experience, let me ask you, how often do you share the spirit of Cavett? And do you remember the first time it was shared with you? One of the most profound examples of when it was shared with me goes back to April 8th, 2004. I was really ill, so ill that I wouldn't be able to work for six months. And later that week, I would be going in for my third surgery over a six-week period. Well, that night, the phone rang, and a stranger was on the other end of the phone. And he probably wouldn't want me to share this story with you, but I think I need to. You see, that stranger said, Jared, you don't know me, but my name's Philip Van Hooser, and I'm calling you from Kentucky. He says, I'm in a mastermind group with your friend Jean Gatz there from your New Orleans chapter. She's told me about your health issues, buddy, and she says you're about to go in for your third surgery. I've been through that very same surgery. I'm just calling to let you know it's going to be all right. Well, that stranger went on to spend 10 more minutes on the phone with me, and then he sent my wife and I a copy of a book that chronicled how he and his wife Susan dealt with his own illness. It was of great comfort to my wife and I. Then about a month later, the spirit of Cavett showed up in my mailbox. It was a generous donation from the Professional Speakers Benefit Fund to help tie Cindy and I and our kids over because I would be out of work for six months. The spirit in our organization is here today because of what NSA founder Cavett Robert and his successors imagined. This month, do me a favor. Take a minute and call someone, friend or stranger, and share the spirit. And do me, please, one other favor. Take a moment to sign up to make a monthly donation to the Professional Speakers Benefit Fund. You can put the donation on your credit card and it'll just come out automatically every month. You'll never feel it. You'll be helping colleagues that you may never know. And you may find that, unexpectedly one day, you might be on the receiving end of those funds. Open your mind to the possibilities and imagine the difference you can make when you spread the spirit of Cabot. For Voices of Experience, I'm Jared Brough.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>